Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that my guest this week is someone who's been on the show before, uh, Professor Frank Ferredi, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, and the author of numerous books, the most recent of which is this, A Hundred Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization. It's just come out. Um, but also I want to talk to him particularly about Hungary, where he's originally from, and Poland, and this ongoing demonization that seems to be happening uh, with regard to these countries. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's right? lovely to be here. Um, very good to see you again. Um, we're talking now, and the reason I want to start with this, because we've just had the anniversary, October 23rd, of the Hungarian uprising against the Soviets or Hungarian revolution. Um, you would have been around nine. Ten, nine, nine yes. years old. What is your memory of that in 1956? Well, uh, I remember a number of things. Uh, what I remember most is the few days leading up to it, where all of a sudden all these illegal newsletters appeared. And my father would send me down to pick them up for him so he could read it. And I just remember seeing uh, people in Stalinist Hungary who, who are usually very scared and reluctant to open their mouths and who would walk around, you know, with their eyes averted or looking at their shoes, all of a sudden uh, tr transforming themselves into very loud, noisy, you know, aggressive individuals criticizing the government. And I remember that transformation occurred very, very fast. And it's something that I always feel really good about because it shows you how ordinary people can find their voice very suddenly in certain circumstances. But I remember the first day very, very clearly because what happened was uh, my sister was very active, the, she was a student, and they were very active in the uh, original uh, sort of momentum behind the revolution. And there was a big demonstration organized and the demonstrators ended up in front of the Hungarian radio, which was just about a hundred meters diagonally across from where I lived. And so uh, my sister took me out that night uh, to kind of watch the proceedings, to yell and shout. And all of a sudden we heard a, a burst of machine gun fire. And what happened was that the uh, secret police who was in the building got scared about the noise and about the uh, sort of the uh, aggressive nature of, us, of the demonstrators in the sense that they were demanding to be let in and, uh, and make a statement. Uh, and the minute they started shooting, my sister just grabbed me and ran back home. You know, and that was, at that point, that's when it really broke out. The armed conflict broke out at that point in time. And I also remember my father, who became the, one of the, the heads of the council, the workers' council in the 5th district of Budapest. And he made me used to carry this uh, council stamp, uh, these official uh, sort of uh, ink, ink pads, right. uh, because he was scared that uh, it might be found. So I used to go around in my school bag and walk around with it for him because nobody would uh, search a, a nine-year-old kid. You know? So I had a lot of incredible memories and it stayed with me to this day because the two weeks during which the revolution succeeded, were so joyous and so intense that for me, 
being uh, uh, watching it, you know, almost like in front of my eyes, it kind of imprinted itself upon my imagination yeah. to this day. And I almost remember every single hour of the first two or three days, yeah. uh, all the way until the moment when it was crushed, when, it, when the tanks came back, the Soviet tanks came back, uh, and the fighting, you know, the fighters were defeated. I remember that very, very clearly. It was a, a really transformative moment for me, and, and I think a lot of people that were uh, involved in that. You have to remember, people don't realize, but if it hadn't been for that revolution, I don't think that uh, you know, the, uh, the unraveling of the Russian Empire would have taken place so fast. I don't think that regime change would have happened. I think that after 56, uh, it, people recognized in the Communist Party, in the Communist regime, that he just couldn't simply rule in the old way. He had to make concessions. Mm -hmm. And that's why Hungary became the most liberal, in inverted commas, of these states. Not really liberal, but you know they allowed people to yeah. uh, have a certain amount of, of of freedom, and I think that it was precisely because it was clear that uh, people just wouldn't put up with this regime of oppression indefinitely. That gradually the the Soviet leadership, the East European leadership, began to know that they are they were really really isolated, and that they were living on borrowed time. But what, when you say you remember. The, you know, those first days before it was crushed. Um, what is it you remember? Uh, was it the... I, I imagine, and I've never been in the situation, of course, that it's just the sheer intensity and joy. I don't know. But, but what was it you remember as a, as a nine-year-old? As, as a nine-year-old, I remember some bad things. For example, I remember on day two, walking around with my father on this boulevard, and there were these um, streetcars that were, that were off the track. Mm. And I looked in there, and there were a couple of dead bodies. And I still remember my father putting his hands on, over my eyes mm. to make sure that I didn't see, see it. And I remember those kinds of incidents. But I also remember, uh, there's one day I remember very, very clearly, because I went to the playground where I used to play with my friends. And in the playground, there were two tanks that were blown up by uh, people that we knew. They were barely older than us. They were like 16, 17-year-old kids who threw some Molotov cocktails into the Russian tanks and blew them up. And I remember watching, you know, sort of watching, uh, you know, sort of the kids playing in the tank. And then what happened was something that I don't quite understand to this day. What happened was that there was a few kids that I knew whose parents and family were implicated in the regime, uh, who were different than we were. We just never talked to them, never trusted them. But there was one boy who was my friend who I didn't, you know, didn't know very much about his family, but he came up to me and he said to me, you know, Frank, I'm really worried. I said, why are you worried? I'm worried because, you know, my dad is in the AVO, which was the secret police. Mm. And I'm really worried that they're going to come and get him and, you know, sort of jail him or beat him up or even execute him. And I was shocked to hear that. But contrary to what I thought I would do, which is to go and tell other people about the family, I kind of said, well, look, I know the guy, you know, he's mm. a friend of mine. Mm. I really rather that he wasn't, uh, you know, put in a, a difficult situation. So I just kept it to myself. And I just remember the, uh, the inner tension, mm. you know, I was very conflicted about what I should do. But in the end, I said, on, on the balance of things, I'm not going to tell on him. You know, so, and then that was one of the, that, that, that day is so much in my memory. Yeah. All those conflicting emotions that kind of kicked in. What is the what is the 
popular memory now in in Hungary of that year? Would you say? Well, it's really funny you should say that because uh, I remember going back first of all in 1969 with my girlfriend. I was hitchhiking around Europe. I was I was a young university student and. First time I've been back. I was there for two days only, and I kept trying to find out what people, you know, people I knew. And every time I saw somebody I knew, I, I wanted to talk about '56, but didn't want to know. You know, people were just really scared to talk about it yeah. because of all the repression that occurred. And one of the things that occurred gradually is that a lot of people just didn't want to talk about it for decades and decades and decades. And even after regime change, when you had uh, a new regime being installed. The, the memory of the revolution was, was almost too raw, or alternatively, people were too complicit in its crushing to want to discuss it. So the memory of, of the revolution was really very much left on the, side, on the side for a very long time until the Fidesz government uh, sort of was elected. And even, even though the Fidesz government has been very prominent in talking about it, in celebrating it, in promoting it, in, and you know, kind of pro uh, organizing cultural events around it, the memory is still uh, um, a little bit ambivalent. So, just to give you an example, about six, seven months ago, six, seven months before the lockdown, I went to Hungary to give a lecture to a group of history teachers, and afterwards they all came up to me and they said, "You know, Frank, was it really so bad?" in the 50s that we needed a revolution. Mm. In other words, in their mind, they just, they just completely uh, could no, not conceptualize how horrible that period was. And they couldn't really understand <clears throat> the rationale for the revolution, why that occurred, why that it broke out. So I think it tells us that uh, historical memory and the legacy of, of the achievement of the Hungarian people is not something you can take for granted any more in Hungary than you could do in England. With the with the with the uh, historical legacy of Britain, it's always being contested. People forget; they get develop very selective memories. But I think that, by and large, uh, the memory. I think that for a lot of people, '56 has it still serves as a. It's probably the, the single most important source of cultural inspiration in their lives. Well, I suppose what a little bit like the Battle of Britain in. In uh, in this country, you know, in terms of folkloric memory, that still balks hugely. It is, and I, I think you, you you raised a very important parallel in a number of respects. It's interesting to note that, you know, when I first read about the Battle of Britain, it was unambiguously celebrated in the most positive way. But given the impulse to rewrite history now, you find a lot of people are saying, well, actually the blitz spirit wasn't really, you know, what it was meant to be. There was a lot of, you know, black marketing going on, you know, bad things were going on. People weren't as brave as, as, the, as the books tell us. You know, and anyway, look at what, uh, what the uh, British Air Force did in Hamburg, you know, sort of. So there's a kind of equivalence drawn between what the Germans did to Britain and vice versa. So there's a, there's a kind of sad attempt to delegitimate de the, the importance of that um, experience. And similarly, on a much smaller scale, there are attempts to say, well, actually, you know, I mean, some people actually argue, some leftists in, you know, in, in Hungary, that if it hadn't been for a revolution, then regime change would have happened faster. That, right, that yeah, somehow, yeah. You know, it was or, or it was unnecessary, mm -hmm. or it actually slowed things down. Completely rewriting history in a way that is 
uh, violates the fundamental facts of the, of the time. Mm. So really, in many ways, it's, it's still kind of looked at ambiguously, is what you're saying. Well, by some. I mean, by, not by the government and, and not by the majority no. of the people, because you know, the majority of people support the government. And even significant, significant section of the opposition. Mm. I think what's happening now is that there's an attempt by different political forces to interpret the revolution in mm. different ways, mm. to give a different kind of meaning to it. So there are debates about whether it was about it was a working class revolution, about class issues, whether it was a, a revolution for national independence, you know, whether it was an anti-communist one. So there's all kinds of different interpretations. And uh, the reality is, is that you know, but, you know, every revolution is complex and people have different motives. But the key motive behind the events of 56 was the affirmation of national independence, of national sovereignty. Yeah. And that's, that to me is... Uh, really cannot be contested in, in terms of historical facts. What is your, I mean, when did you come to Britain? Well, well, basically what happened was that we fled Hungary in November 56. Uh, we spent two months in Austria and we ended up in Canada, in French Canada, where I went to school. I grew up there and, and when I was 21, hmm. finished university, I decided to do my PhD in London and the, and the plan was that this was in 69, that I would spend two, three years in England and then go back. And then one morning I woke up and I realized I spent all my adult life in this country. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have, what is your connection now with Hungary? I mean, has it grown stronger as you've gotten older or, or, or what? Well, for a long time, I, I felt uneasy about getting involved in Hungary. I don't know why it was. Uh, and although I kept an eye on what's going on in Hungary, I, I very rarely went back. And I think that what happened was that um, uh, the, the, the first event that really set me thinking was, I think in, in 2006, there was a, at that point there was a socialist government mm. so in, in Hungary. And this government uh, was extremely uh, uh, sort of uh, corrupt in, in the way that it handled financial affairs. It essentially was complicit in privatizing the state property of the old regime and uh, just giving it to you know, their mates, to their leads. And what happened was that the, the uh, prime minister, the socialist prime minister, who was a big favorite of the European Union leadership, made a speech where he said, look, we've been lying to the population about the fact that uh, things are going to be better. We've been lying about the population about hiding all the economic problems that we've created. And that speech was somehow leaked out. And uh, when it was leaked out, and uh, people heard what, you know, the, that the prime minister was saying that uh, they were lying, you know, mass demonstrations broke out, which, which, which then got you know, really badly, brutally uh, sort of handled by the police. And what happened was that the um, media here in England, I remember this very, very clearly, was denouncing the demonstrators like football hooligans yes. and right-wing thugs and you know, neo-fascists. And everywhere, I was looking at all the European press, the Western European press, and they were being all denigrated and almost criminalized, even though this was just a genuine you know, uh, sort of uh, protest movement by people who feel that they've been cheated and let down. And I think it was at that time that, you know, sort of, I remember writing an article 
I'm making the point that, uh, you know, sort of uh, what the EU was saying is that they don't mind liars, you know, like Gurchanyi, the prime minister, as long as there are liars, yes, you know, yes. sort of. Yeah, and that yeah. kind of double standard for, for which the Brussels bureaucracy is very famous was something I really picked up at that particular point in time. Mm. And I think from that point onwards, I became more and more interested. And in the last five or six years, I started going back quite regularly. So I spend a lot of time there now. And I, you know, I, one of the things I try to do is to act as a, almost like a, a mediator between Hungary and the West, where I try to explain to Western, uh, and a Western audience what Hungary is doing, what's important about what Hungary is doing. And I try to explain to Hungarians you know, what's going on in the West, because they find it very difficult to understand the hostility that's often targeted against them. They also find it very difficult to understand, you know, sort of how this crazy identity politics, which, which is quite incomprehensible to them, is just, you know, in ascendancy all over the West. So mm. I try to sort of uh, act as a bit of a an intellectual kind of bridge between these two societies. Well, I mean, we talk about that in a, in a minute, uh, the identity politics. Uh, you've actually talked about that on this channel before. I mean, Netflix and all of this kind of thing is happening. But, I mean, the fact is, is you say, you know, you, you want to try to explain to a, a hostile environment here. Uh, You've got your work cut out, haven't you? Because there really is, and I would say, a growing demonization. You wrote about this recently, Hungary and Poland in particular, that there is this uh, belief that amongst journalists and colonists here, that people are, you know, that these countries are incipient dictatorships, right? Yeah. And this is just not the case, is it? No, I mean, I think there's a, almost like a parallel universe that's been created which anybody that goes to Hungary doesn't recognize. So for example, the EU frequently denounces Hungary for being authoritarian. Mm. And they talk about the Putinization of Hungary, that somehow it's going to become this naked dictatorship. And when I tell, you know, sort of a Western audience, all you gotta do is compare how the Hungarian government handles a protest demonstration and how the government of Macron in France handles it you get a different reality because in you know when the the gilet jaune demonstrate in france they get killed you know yeah. almost 12 people got killed in recent years and and the police violence that's used against them is quite considerable when 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 you have a hundred thousand protesters in budapest yelling and shouting at the government and and just basically kind of sitting down and you know, you know sort of uh, really demonstrating in a very kind of uh, militant way, the police watch them and the police just make sure that, you know, order is kept. There's no violence, no nothing. And yet, you know, Hungary is authorita authoritarian, whereas mm -hmm. France is super democratic and is, mm. you know, super liberal. So it's a kind of double standard. And I can give you a lot of examples. I think the most grotesque example that really riles me up is when they say that the Hungarian government is anti-Semitic. Mm. And the interesting thing is that Budapest has got this, you know, the second largest Jewish community in the whole of Europe. It's got a flourishing Jewish culture. And very often when my English friends come to Budapest and I show them around, they make the point that they don't, they, they see all these, all these posters advertising, you know, Yiddish klezmer music or advertising Jewish cultural activities. And there is not a, a single graffiti 
on any of these posters. And they make the point, imagine if similar posters were put up in East London or in Bradford. Yes, yes. They would be defaced, you know, almost mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, and the other example I use is that, you know, there is about eight or nine Jewish restaurants in Budapest. Not a single one of them has got any police protection or there's no need for guards. You go to Brussels or Paris, it's unthinkable that you would have a mm. Jewish restaurant without there being two policemen you know, standing outside mm. to kind of uh, protect it. So there's a kind of weird you know, sort of double standard, a, a kind of fantasy uh, sort of uh, Hungary that's been constructed almost in a, in a Disney-fight kind of a way. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, it's very powerful. I know personally, I know personally that ever since I've been actively talking about Hungary, ever since I wrote a book, I wrote a book a, a few years ago called The uh, Culture Wars in, in European Union, The Case of Hungary. Uh, ever since I did that, uh, a lot of media outlets that would publish my stuff or would interview me, I just, you know, cut me out completely. Here in Britain also in a few other countries. And, and it's almost as if I become a persona non grata, mm. you know, almost mm. overnight, just because I have, I have good things to say about what's happening in Hungary. I mean, I'm not a, an apologist, you know, and I've never said that the Hungarian government is, uh, are a bunch of angels and they don't make any mistakes. All, I make, all I'm really kind of pointing out is there is a really uh, sort of uh, horrible propaganda campaign mm. that's been organized, that's very uh, systemic and, and totally contradicts the reality of what's happening in Hungarian and for that matter, Polish society. There's also a, a very particular uh, problem with the EU at the moment, is now rather people, Remainers, particularly in pro-EU people like David Aronovich, I think you mentioned in yeah. your con. Uh, they have particularly got it in, haven't they, for Hungary or, po or Poland, excuse me, uh, simply because it's about parliamentary sovereignty, isn't it? I mean, that they're going against the idea of supranational yeah. sovereignty. Exactly. So all, all the important ideals that motivated pro-Brexit mm. supporters are, are now institutionalised in Hungary. That is the official doctrine of, of, of national independence and parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, not being part of this globalist, you know, sort of uh, uh, cultural outlook. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those things are there. And, and in their eyes, you know, sort of uh, the Hungarian government and Hungarian society is committing every single cultural crime that they have ever imagined on, on all the important questions. They have a, a, uh, they have a worldview that's uh, almost, almost polar opposite. But not mm -hmm. only that, but... Unlike other governments, the Hungarian government actually uh, and aggressively, you know, sort of idealizes those kind of traditional values, yes. which they loathe, which they really, really hate. And, and it's probably the only government, because although there is the, also, the Polish government is, is, is also not liked, uh, the, Polish the Polish prime minister and the Polish government are not nearly as committed to the to the promotion of, of that culture and, and, and the, the long-term uh, sort of projection of a, a different way of, of living and being as a human being that, that the Hungarian government does. Because whatever you think about them, they are, you know, the prime minister in particular is a man of ideals and principles, not a pragmatic, not simply a kind of pragmatic uh, politician. And I think that kind of marks him out. There's very few people around now. <coughs> 
who have that who who actually live by their principles rather than simply by you know the uh, dictates of the next election i mean this is a point really isn't it that you even though they might talk about sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty and these things it's essentially it is a distaste isn't it for what prime minister orban or the government stands for what it sees as important it's a distaste are you uh you know a supporter of orban are you a fan of the prime minister well i think that you know in the world that we live in uh, you have to make choices and i think that if i've got to make a choice between the sovereignist a political culture that is promoted by Orbán's government I'm wholeheartedly behind that mm. and I'm wholeheartedly behind uh his attempt to protect Hungary uh, and affirm its independence Hungary has very rarely enjoyed national independence and 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 I think that that historical legacy is very much preying on on the mind of him yeah. And, yeah. and his colleagues so I think that's something I really support I think I think the Hungarian government has done some wonderful things as well um I think that their family policy is is really good in the way that they're pro- providing a lot of support for uh for for women and families in the sense of uh providing daycare, making it easier to bring kind of children up. And I think some of their economic policies have really worked quite well. They they are old-fashioned conservative, not liberal kind of economic policies where they they have gone out of their ways to provide uh, a, a social net particularly for the rural poor and and just in general you know sort of uh, helping people get on the mortgage ladder they've done a tremendous amount of work to to provide uh, people with the resources to buy their first home so a lot of those things i think are are, are extraordinarily creatively uh, done you know obviously like other governments they make mistakes they they screw things up mm-hmm. that's that comes with the territory so I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, I'm an uncritical no, you know, no. supporter, but but I, I do think that uh, they have you know they have really marked out for themselves a very strong foundation to develop a a more independent uh, and genuinely conservative, mm. not kind of rhetorically kind of conservative uh, political uh, sort of outlook, and also just a, a valuing a pride in the nation state and the fact that it's a christian uh nation state uh i uh, what i hear quite a bit here is people sort of say well you know <clears throat> if things get really bad here there's always it used to be there's always america <laughs> it's not america anymore it, it, increasingly people say well actually there's you know there's hungary there is central europe eastern europe where people still value these things um we are at the beginning of an election campaign would you say in Hungary is it sort of like has it really kicked off right? yeah, yeah it it it, it it's non-stop election at the moment the election is going to be held in April April yeah and it's going to be a very close election because the all the opposition parties from the far right to the left have united in a very unprincipled way so basically they formed an electoral bloc mm. and they're putting forward one candidate uh to run against uh, Orbán so it's going to be a fairly close election in, in the sense that you know it's going to be you know sort of totally polarized you either vote for one or the other kind of situation myself i think that the uh, uh government is you know is likely to to win the election mm. mainly because it's got a very solid base of support uh and that's that solid base of support is not going to disintegrate uh 
anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Whereas the opposition, you know, sort of, uh, although they've been able to get you know everybody together, from, you know, all, all across the political divide, there's a lack of solidity uh, in 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 there. So. Yes. Yeah. But it's it's gonna it's gonna be very very exciting in the sense that. Uh, in the in in the previous election, it was very clear that Orbán would win, mm. uh, and and also the one before that. So it's you know, it is despite what you know one hears, it is a genuinely democratic mm. political campaigning that is taking place. Who who is the who is the candidate that has drawn you know all these parties have drawn? You said there's one candidate. Yeah, he's a man who's. Uh, lived most of his recent life in Canada and America, came back to Hungary, and, and uh, I think a couple of years ago he managed to get elected as a mayor of a small city in Hungary. Mm. And he did that primarily by uniting the whole opposition. He got, he, he got again, the, from the left to the far right to basically run one candidate. Yep. And to everybody's surprise, he, did, he defeated the, the Fidesz mayor who was had become relatively unpopular. So that's how he became propelled on a national stage. He hasn't got a real party. And that's one of the interesting things, because if should the opposition win and he gets becomes prime minister, he hasn't got a, a parliamentary yes, majority yeah. or parliamentary support. So uh, I would probably, I, I would think that he wouldn't last very long. He'd be replaced by an opposition leader with a more solid uh, party support. Mm. But the reason why they're running him rather than anybody else, the reason why the opposition has united behind him is because he, he claims to be conservative, he claims to be religious, you know, he's got seven kids. So, you know, the opposition reckons that a left-wing candidate is unlikely to beat Orban. So they're trying to find somebody who's like, you know, sort of their equivalent, you know, uh, yeah more Orban than Orban in many ways. Yes. Even yes. though his politics uh, is really the politics of the European Union. If you can imagine uh, Tony Blair and David Cameron had a child, you know, so that would be him. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you mentioned that the kind of identity politics that take up so many hours of our time here you know, would still strike most people in Hungary as being um, strange. Yeah. You know? um, by way of rather clumsy segue, your book, A Hundred Years of Identity Crisis, which looks actually, doesn't it, at the very genesis of what we're talking about now with identity politics, would people looking in Hungary, reading your book, would they sort of nod along and say, oh, yes, that's true, that's true? Or... or, or or is this something which is, you know, are you talking about Western Europe here? Well, well, the thing is, is that um, although these kinds of ideals are particularly strong in the Anglo-American sphere and particularly mm. in the urban centers, <clears throat> and particularly amongst the university educated professional classes, that's where their heartland is, uh, not in, you know, sort of not in Bradford or, or, or not in Sunderland. Uh, nevertheless, because of the power behind it, uh, which is essentially fueled by American soft power, it does spread everywhere. So, you know, Germans laugh about it and all of a sudden they're kind of deciding what kind of pronouns to use. And similarly, if you look at East Europe, I, I, know, I remember very, very clearly about three and a half years ago, I gave a speech in Hungary about gender politics 
about the whole obsession with gender identity in the West. And I remember at the time, some people said to me afterwards, that's very, very interesting, Frank. It's not relevant to us because that will never take off in, in Budapest. And I yeah. said, yeah. I said uh, I'll bet you my 50 pounds against your one pound that very, very soon, you know, you'd be, you're going to be coming up against it. And sure as, sure as, as, as my 50 pounds and their one pound, it's really beginning to surface in Budapest where you have, you know, sort of the, almost like the aping of cultural habits, first amongst university mm. people, but then gradually within that cultural, you know, sort of milieu kind of seeping in. And so you now have a situation where, you know, sort of uh, many of the opposition politicians have embraced the EU, LGBTQ, you know, sort of identity, mm. Mm. Uh, sort of orientation. And although they're not going to be that noisy about it because they know it's not going to be a, a vote winner, nevertheless, you, you know that it's only a matter of time before it spreads from that core, uh, that, that core of uh, academics and cultural professionals to the rest of society, mm. or at least in the urban environment. So I think that uh, those Hungarians imagine that they're immunized from this or complacent. Yes. I mean, yeah. thankfully, at the moment, you know, sort of good sense prevails in many sectors mm. of society. And it does feel like, you know, like, you know, this is home, you know, essential, real, real old fashioned, old school, you know, sort of uh, attitudes uh, that are being demonstrated. But that's, that is not going to stay the way it is for any length of time, unless it's challenged. They wouldn't say the trans thing hasn't got a big purchaser at the moment. I mean, <clears throat> here in London, you know, we've got uh, in Camden, we've got these new uh, road crossings that are tra in trans colours. You know, it's just relentless all the time. I mean, if someone would, someone wouldn't presumably put down a trans crossing in downtown Budapest, would they? I mean, possibly the new mayor of Budapest, who's a <laughs> my. But look, the way that it works is that if you're a kid, if you're like an 18 year old kid, and you in Budapest, and you want to be a little bit edgy, mm -hmm. and you want to demonstrate you're a bit of a rebel, and you want to give your parents and, and, and the adults a hard time, you're going to pick up on all this stuff that yes. you see online. Yes. And you're going to put on an LGBTQ hat, one of those hats, yeah. you know, or you're going to uh, sort of do something that, uh, an act of defiance that's expressed through the uh, transgenderist uh, ideology, because that's, that's the way these things go. Now, you know, I can live with that. I can live with, you know, sort of rebellious kids doing that as long as there are sensible and intelligent grown-ups who are able to manage this and deal with this and, and, and affirm, you know, sort of the value that at the end of the day, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, there is two sexes, you know, there's a man, there are men and there are women and we, don't, we mustn't violate scientific facts in the interest of you know, celebrating these uh, rainbow colors. So I do think that, you know, I, I am worried because I know how these things can spread very, very fast. I mean, I, I spent most of my adult life in a university environment, and I can say how the most, see how the most grotesque ideas can take hold very, very fast and then spread like wildfire as long as people acquiesce to it and look the other way and don't take a stand against it. I mean, would you even go, would you go, would you pursue an academic career now 
if you were, say, like in your early 20s? Oh, um, to be honest, this is an interesting question because uh, the university system has changed so much. Mm. I would, but the reason why I would is because I don't want to leave all those kids mm. under the influence of one body of opinion. I think there are a lot of people I know who are really good people who think the way that you and I think, who tell me that they would never go anywhere near university because of the kind of uh, culture that prevails there. And I tell them that that's an easy way out. Mm. That to some extent, as an educator, as an intellectual, you've got a duty to uh, do whatever you can to stand up against this, to provide an alternative pull. I mean, look what happened in Sussex University mm. when they got rid of Kathleen Stock. To me, the really horrible thing about it was, more than anything, wasn't what they did to Kathleen. It, it was the fact that not a single academic signed a letter of support in, mm. in her own university. Mm. I mean, her own philosophy department was just conspicuously silent. Mm. Can you imagine your colleagues turning their backs on you? Your mm. colleagues, even if they disagree with you, mm. just ignoring the, the, the fundamental precepts of academic freedom. Mm. So when, when you have that kind of uh, climate of opinion, uh, we need more people in there. I, we, I don't need to create new universities, which I'm all for, or alternatively, we need to be there and provide a counterpoint to the dominant uh, ideological uh, sort of mood in, on these campuses. So I would, even though I know I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have the kind of easy time that I had in my own academic career. Uh, it would be a, a struggle to be there and I would mm. need, you know, a few friends to give me stiff drinks and watch my back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, what is quite encouraging is that uh, uh, Kathleen Stark is just joined up with this new university, I think the University of Austin. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, which is not sort of actually operating quite yet. That's right, yeah. But it's, it's a step in the right direction. This book, uh, Frank, does, as I say, lay the roots of a lot of what we're talking about a long time ago, doesn't it? In particular, in the whole point of socialisation. Yeah. Do you mean of children? Yeah. I think the culture war always begins in the nursery. In the nursery? Yeah, we yeah. don't realize that, but it's, uh, it, ever since uh, the late 19th century, it's been through the attempt to influence children that the culture war has kicked in. Mm. And after I wrote this book, uh, what, you know, look what happened in Virginia, mm. where you had the attempt by the, the teaching profession to uh, bring in transgenderist uh, ideals in the classroom to bring in critical race theory. And when the parents basically said, I don't want my kid to learn all this stuff, they were denounced as domestic terrorists, yeah. right? So you know, a huge row broke out. And that to me is like, you know, what the culture war is really all about. By mm. the time it gets to the university, you know, sort of one side or the other has won. Mm. It's too late to turn the clock back because if young people are educated into a, a view of the world, that is uh, against the, the legacy of Western civilization, that is suspicious of Britain's past, that is all too ready to make fun of any, everything that is British. By the time they get to university, it's really too late to do yeah. very much about that. So yeah. what I've done is I kind of showed the genesis, the genealogy of the culture war, which, you know, which took, began a long time ago. A hundred years, century? Yeah, and, and more than a century. And, but, and, and it's only now crystallized into becoming the dominant 
sort of uh, kind of battlefield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, uh, at the moment, we're not arguing that much about taxation policies or about social spending. We're spending a lot of arguments about identity-related issues. Mm -hmm. And that took a long, long, long time to, to come in. And in the book, I trace the origins. And the reason why I do it is not because I want people to learn about history, but I want people to understand what is special, what is distinct mm. about the way in which the values that have made Britain Britain and made uh, you know, human civilization what it is, how those values are, have such a precarious status at the moment. And if you understand that, I think a, a lot more people would be willing to mobilize against it and, and yes. spread the word. You've actually, I mean, identifying the very roots of this, um, there are still a lot of people around who think this is kind of just like modish fashion, isn't that right? Um, and it's absolutely not as we're seeing in America, as you said. Hmm. Um, 100 Years of Identity Crisis by Professor Frank Ferretti. Um The book is out now, is it? Frank? It is, it yes. Is indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you very much for talking to us about that, but also about Hungary and, and yeah. about the past in Hungary. Yeah, it was a pleasure to no. reminisce. No, it's, it's, it's <laughs> uh, wonderful. I've got to know uh, at least Budapest myself a bit lately, and um, I, I, I love this, and um, looking forward to going back again. Thank you very much, Frank. Thank you. Right. Thank um, you. That's it for this time on So What You're Saying Is. Uh, we shall see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.